Philippians chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. I want to begin this morning by talking to really us uh, as a church family, um, because these are exciting times for our church. Our church is growing. Um, We're grateful that you all are really uh, being aware of inviting people to church and sharing the gospel with people. We've grown through word of mouth, really, and we're we're grateful for that. Uh, We've seen our small groups continue uh, to grow. About 50% of you uh, go to a small group on a regular basis, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for sm- full small groups. We'll, we want to have more small groups in the in the uh, in the next year. Um, but we're grateful that we've seen that response of, of m- many of you wanting to live in, in gospel community. Uh, we're grateful for the sacrifice, sacrificial giving that you all have displayed, the generosity that you all have um, displayed, and we're looking forward to this move. But what we've been telling you, and our battle cry has been. That as we make a transition like this, that we don't want to lose our identity. And so what would that look like if we were to lose our identity? Well, clearly we have a, a, a mission statement. Our mission is to mature and multiply believers, to leave a gospel legacy. So we say, okay, we want to continue to do that no matter where we meet. If we meet in a tent outside or if we have a, a building like this. We, we, but we don't want to lose that identity, of course. But what is it? that really makes, that should make Integrity Church distinct? Is it just our mission statement, or is there something more profound that, that drives us? And I would argue there's something more profound that drives us. And that one thing, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. And so what it would mean for us to lose our distinctive or lose our identity or lose our way as a church would be what I would argue would rob our joy, which is gospel clarity. And we as a church, we as elders, one of the hopes that we have as we pray and we talk about together as a, as a leadership team, I mean, what, what, what do we want to have as a church? We always want to remain faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to preach it clear. And the urgency that we have before us is the context that we live in. Because we live in the Bible Belt, and I would argue that the Bible Belt is not known for gospel clarity. Because what you often see in the Bible Belt is what many refer to as, and what I'll refer to as this morning as, easy believism, which is this idea that we can come to faith in Jesus Christ without true genuine repentance and without true without a true genuine belief in the gospel in the bible belt there's this view of the gospel that says as long as i put forth enough effort as long as i say the right things as long as i attend church as long as i serve as long as i give as long as i abstain from the right things as long as i watch the right movies and don't watch the wrong movies, as long as I listen to the right music and don't listen to the bad music, then I'm in good standing with God. And so what that is, is easy believism, because it says you just have to put forth enough effort, and that is what will make you in good standing with God when Scripture says the opposite. And when in reality, guess, God is less interested in those things, and God is, in Scripture, more interested in your heart. But what I've seen here at Integrity is many people come to the doors of our church believing that having a 
relationship with Jesus Christ means that I've put forth the effort and I've earned that. And there are many who come to the doors of Jesus Christ who don't know, or come to, doors, come to the doors of integrity, that don't know Christ, but they've just played the church game. And if you don't believe me, listen to any baptism testimony. When we do baptisms here at Integrity, we let you hear the testimony of those who have repented and believed in the gospel. And many of them will say, well, I thought I was a Christian because I went to church. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I prayed a prayer when I was young. But then what happens later in their story, they say, but I realized that it didn't change my life. And I realized it didn't bring me joy. And I realized that I didn't really think about scripture. And I realized I didn't really think about being around other believers. And it wasn't until college where then I understood. Or it wasn't until I was a young adult. Or it wasn't until I was 40. Or it wasn't until I was 50. Until I began to understand what this really means. And what will often happen is that They'll play the church game for long enough to where they just rebel and they realize that what they thought they believed, they actually don't believe because they're not living it out. Or they play the church game, they do all the right things, and then what will happen is a trial comes, which is inevitable for all of us, and the trial will utterly dismantle them, and they realize that their faith is not as strong as they thought it was. And so that brought them eventually to genuine repentance in real faith in Christ. And the tragedy is, there's many who go through their entire lives with a false understanding of the gospel because the gospel that they have been introduced to was more about easy believism and legalism, doing the right things, than it is about grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. And many will die with a false assurance and a false knowledge of the true gospel. That's the tragedy. And that, my friends, is what is at stake on why we need to preach gospel clarity. That is what it's like. Salvation, eternity is at stake if we fail to preach the gospel and to preach it clearly. So Paul has the same passion that we do as Integrity Church. Paul is like, listen, if there's one thing that will rob you from your joy is a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 3 is a plea for gospel clarity. It's not about what you do. Rather, it's about what Christ has accomplished. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the hope for gospel clarity. That's what we're going to see. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Y'all ready? We're good? Y'all are pretty quiet. I think I scared you a little bit. It's going to be good. All right? Trust me. It's in the Bible. It's good. All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this is an odd way to start a chapter. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for, to me and is safe for you. Now, this is an odd way to start a chapter because we know there's, there's also a chapter 4. So why does he say finally in chapter 3? It would seem like he's like one of those preachers that says, in closing, and then he talks for another 45 minutes, right? If you want to know why I never say finally in a sermon, is that is the reason, because I don't want you to cut out everything. Finally is like a death sentence for a pastor. Finally. Okay, good. He's about done, right? 
But what is he? He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And it's not like he's about to close it. And it's not like, oh, i got to write this too. I forgot this point. He's not doing that. Finally actually means to go on. He's like, to go on, rejoice in the Lord. And what he's trying to do is, is a theme that he's been communicating throughout this entire letter. He's been reminding the believers in Philippi where their joy is found. And so he's constantly saying, okay, until I go to the next point, don't forget to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord through all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord through all changes of life, all the challenges that you are going to face. And then what he does from verse 1 and then back into verse 2 is he's going to show them what could rob their joy. So he's like, finally, rejoice in the Lord. But here's the thing. This, if you don't pay attention to what he's going to say next, your joy could be robbed. And so this is where he goes on. Verse 2. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice what he says. He begins by saying, okay, if you don't want your joy to be robbed, he says, watch out. Watch out for who? He says the dogs, those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the false teachers that are in the church of Philippi. He's actually talking about, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, but they're called Judaizers. And they believe that you can have the gospel, but you have to, in order to really understand and really know and embrace the true gospel, or even, even to be on this higher level of understanding the gospel, you have to believe in the gospel, yes, but you also have to bring in the old covenant law, the Old Testament law that says you have to be circumcised. You, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law of Moses. And then you receive a varsity level of Christianity. And what does Paul call them? He says they're dogs. They mutilate the flesh. They don't even understand what circumcision is about. But they're teaching it in a way saying to use, to manipulate people, and to harm people, and to steer them away from the gospel. Now, it seems kind of odd that Paul's bringing this up in chapter 3, because in chapter 1, he almost seemed like he was being lenient about the gospel. I'll I'll read it. Chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, but not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." So what's the difference? It seems like he's saying, man, I'm just thankful that the gospel is going forward in chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, he's like, whoa, 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 these people, don't listen to them. So what's, what's the difference? Is Paul talking out of two sides of his mouth? I would argue no. What, what's happening in chapter 1 is Paul's actually talking about a different type of person. There were people, uh, because Paul was such a great leader, people wanted to be the next Paul. People wanted to be like Paul. And so what was happening in chapter 1 where there were other teachers that were coming up and trying to replace Paul. And Paul's like, hey, that's an impure motive. You know, it's kind of cruddy that they're trying to be the next Paul. But listen, I'm just thankful that the gospel is going forward. So he's, he's always concerned with content. He's not as concerned with motive because he says even with an impure motive, the gospel is going forward. 
But in chapter 3, the issue that Paul is having and the angst that he's having and the passion that he's having is really about content. So one, chapter 1 is about motive. Chapter 3, he's about content. He's like, listen, don't mess with the gospel. Don't preach a different gospel. The same people, the Judaizers, when Paul talks about them in Galatia, in Galatia, Paul talks about the Judaizers probably more than any other false teacher that he addresses or calls out. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul, the whole re- meaning why Paul wrote the book of Galatia, of Galatians, was to write to the church of Galatia to warn them about the false teaching of the Judaizers. Same people in Philippi. And how he begins in, in Galatians chapter 1 is very interesting. He says, Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you, believers, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice he calls the, the gospel of the Judaizers a different gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some of you who are troubled and want to distort the gospel. There, there are some who just trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, listen to what Paul says about the clarity of the gospel. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as I said before, and I'll say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So how does he describe the gospel of the Judaizers? He says it's a different gospel. He says they distort the gospel. He says they should be accursed. And as the Judaizers would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and distort it, they would add to it by saying the gospel plus this equals the true gospel. And it was so sad that even many of the new converts, the the Gentile, the non-Jewish converts that would become believers in Christ would begin to be persuaded by these Judaizers. Sadly, even in Galatians chapter 2, we're told that Peter, who walked with Jesus Christ, was still steered away and somewhat swayed by these false teachers until Paul had to confront Peter to his face and tell him that he was wrong. Because they believed in this Varsity, junior varsity view of Christianity saying, you can become a Christian, yes, but you must do these things and then you're a true Christian. And it sounds much like we, what we have done in the Bible Belt. We say, well, as long as you clean up your life, as long as you look this, a certain way, as long as you act a certain way, as long as you do all the rituals that Christians are supposed to do, then you're in the right, then you're in good standing with God. But later, Paul actually adds a little sarcasm in Galatians chapter 5 to this. He says, Galatians 5, 11, he poses the question, if circumcision really does make you right, this is what Paul says. I'm just reading the Bible. This is a weird verse, all right? But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. See what Paul's saying? He's saying if circumcision is what makes you holy, they should just go all the way. That's what Paul's saying. And if you don't know what I'm saying here, ask a small group leader after the service. They would love to tell you what this verse means, all right? But he's saying it can't be this. If it was this serious, they would just, why wouldn't they just go ahead and 
do it all together, right? Knock it all out. But here's the interesting thing about Paul. Paul uses, uses this, these harsh terms like this to the Judaizers, but he doesn't do it as harsh to the other false teachers. For instance, in First and Second Timothy, the issue that Paul was dealing with in First and Second Timothy were believers who said that we're just spiritual beatings and what we do with our bodies don't really matter. And that was the false teaching that was happening in Ephesus when First and Second Timothy were written. And so what happened was Paul just dispelled it because it was quick. It was quick to dismiss that because that's not in the Bible. So it's like, okay, that's wrong. Well, just kick those guys out of the church and stop listening to them. And that was it. And then you have First and Second Corinthians, and then Paul is dealing with people in First and Second Corinthians, false teachers that said the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen. So Paul's like, hey, it happened. I saw it, right? Then he goes into First Corinthians 15. He says, man, if Christ didn't rise from the grave, where's our hope? How do, we, how do we have hope for another day? How do, if Christ didn't resurrect from the grave, we're still in our sins. We're stuck in our sins. So it's kind of easy to dispel. But why is he so harsh toward the Judaizers? Here's my answer. Paul's tone is more harsh to the Judaizers because what the Judaizers say, now listen, what the Judaizers say sounds a lot like the gospel, but it's just enough of adding to the gospel to lead someone astray. This is what angers Paul the most. The fact that someone would hear what the Judaizers are saying, believing that it's the gospel, and it would be just enough to take them away from the gospel of grace and lead them into a lifestyle of self-righteousness and legalism. Legalism is an enemy of the gospel. But it is pervasive in the South. It is pervasive in the church. It's all around us. And that's why I always say, I I don't say, I don't struggle with legalism. I always say, I'm a recovering legalist. Because I'm fighting this battle in myself to say, there's something Ben did to earn the favor of God. And Paul would say, no, there's nothing that you did to earn the favor of God. Jesus would say, there's nothing you did to earn God's favor. It's all grace. Paul communicates it this way in Titus chapter 1 when the Judaizers again are communicating a false gospel. He said there are many who are unsubordinate. They're empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's how you know he's talking about the Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not teach. You give them down to 13. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command, commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul calls them dogs that must be silenced. And you say, well, dogs are cute. They're sweet, you know? We, in our culture, what do we do with dogs? We put them in family photos. They're a part of the family, you know? We wear them in Halloween. Co- we put costumes on them now. Some, I see high chairs for dogs, strollers for dogs. It's, it's way out of control in our culture, all right? <laughs> It's way out of control. But in this context, people didn't have dogs as pets. I think they had that right. Actually, I don't know. I'm just, that was one thing, I was, you know. 
They, they didn't have dogs as pets. What were dogs in that culture? Dogs were like vultures. They were like possums. They were scavengers. And so he's saying, man, these are like, you're, you're scavengers. You're, you're vultures. You're coming into the church and you're feeding on dead hearts. It's wrong. And so Paul says they must be silenced. And what Paul's going to say, in ver- what Paul says in verse 3 is, Paul's really speculating whether or not they really understand the gospel. Look at verse 3. He says, but we, he's talking about believers, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, what is circumcision? Well, again, small group leaders, they're great for that. Um, You can ask me anything you want, all right? But circumcision is the removal of flesh. And in the Old Covenant, this is what circumcision meant. It meant it was an external way that you were to show that you belong to the covenant family of God, believers. It's a way that said, I'm a part of the, the Israelites, the, the believers in, in God. And what would end up happening is, as it began to translate, as you begin to see progressive revelation happen, and you see Christ and what Christ came to accomplish, there was no need for an, for an external sign to show that you were in the family of God. Actually, what happened after Christ is you, it became internal. It became, okay, I love Christ. So how is it that we know who a believer is and a non-believer? It's a changed life. It's a circumcision of our hearts. So that's the difference between the Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant says everything's external. How do you know you're a part of the family of God? You, have to, you obey these laws and you, you become circumcised and you're saying, I'm a part of this because I've done these external things. I've checked everything off the list. <coughs> everything in the New Covenant is the opposite. It's all about your heart. How do you know someone loves God? Because they love God. They want to they love other people. They want to live a sacrificial life. They want to fight sin. They hate sin. Why? Because as it says in Ezekiel 36, it's written on our hearts. It's a law that's written on our hearts. And Paul's saying, hey, these guys think they understand circumcision. Because they're saying this is external thing that would make you righteous if you do this external thing. He's like, they're missing the whole point. We're of the circumcision party. We have the redeemed hearts. Christ has redeemed our hearts. And that's why he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Seen by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence, no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what we do is what Paul's saying. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about the confidence that he used to have in the flesh. He says, verse 4, he says, Though I myself <coughs> have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, this is Paul talking before he's referring to himself before he's a believer. He says, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. And what that means is if circumcised on the eighth day means that he was a legit Jew. People that were introduced to Judaism later on would have been circumcised later. He'd say, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born in this. I was raised in this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's very interesting he, when he talks about the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, I've been a part of this and you can track it. You can track my religious heritage. 
And from the tribe of Benjamin, that meant something because what would happen with Jews is many of the Jews, because of persecution, were so dispersed throughout the Old Testament history that they didn't even know where they came from, which family they came from. It's kind of like living in North Carolina. Like, where, what's your heritage? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm American, you know, that's my heritage, right? You know, it's like, that's it, right? People are like, what, where, did, which, where did you come from, Ben? I'm like, I, I, Irish, right? I mean, that's, that's the easy one. You know, I always say, I'm part Irish because I have no idea. Like, obviously part Irish. That's all I've got, right? But Paul knows that he came from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was, would be one of the most elite tribes that came from Jacob, and he was one of the, the sons of Jacob and Rachel. We know where this came from. We know this guy is a legit Jew. And Paul is going to say, it doesn't even matter. And all the things that Paul mentions in, in chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5 are all the things that his, he would have inherited from his parents, and he says it doesn't matter. And it's really sad because here in the South, I talk to people and they say, I, I, are you a Christian? Yeah, I was, the first thing they say, I was raised in a Christian home. Oh, okay. Why does that matter? It doesn't matter to Paul. It doesn't matter to Paul that he came from the tribe of Benjamin. It doesn't matter to Paul that he was um, from the, uh, born circumcised on the eighth day, that he was with the people of Israel. It doesn't matter to Paul. It doesn't matter that you were raised in a Christian home. Sometimes I ask people, they're like, man, when did you become a Christian? I've always been a Christian. You have not always been a Christian. You did not come out of the womb going, man, I love Jesus Christ. Here's my Bible app. I've been reading in the womb. It's unbelievable. I have this relationship with Christ. You did not do that. No one has done that ever. You've not always been a Christian. At some point in your life, you have to come to the realization that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. And you repent and believe in the gospel. That is what makes you a Christian. You were not born a Christian. You are not a Christian because you came from a Christian home. You have a Christian heritage. You are not a Christian because you are American. Amen. Thank you. Not a Christian because you're American. People say, we're a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation. All right? Not a Christian because of where you came from. You're not a Christian from your heritage. You're not a Christian because of your denomination. Paul makes a distinction here. The first three things that he talks about, things that he, his heritage and where he's from, the next few things that he talks about is actually what he did. Second part of verse five, next part of verse five, he says he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew of Hebrews meant that he was, grew from a boy to a man, that he stayed with his tradition that he was like the youth group all-star, you know, the kid who gets on your nerves a little bit, that kid, like, right? The Bible cover kid, you know? If you have your Bible cover, that's fine. We love you, all right? <laughs> Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. And not only does that mean that he tried to follow the Old Testament law word for word, line for line, but it also means that he added all of the Jewish traditions to become as righteous as possible. So much so that he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So much so as he says in verse 6, he says, as to righteousness, which under the law, he says, blameless. He says, you couldn't find me in any point in my life where I was disobeying the law. That's what he was saying. 
And so Paul has this incredible resume that everyone wants to have. Every Jewish boy who wants to be raised in a solid Jewish home, they want all these things that Paul says, man, I inherited, but not only did I inherit, but I also lived out. And what does Paul say about that? Look at verse 7. But whatever I gain, I count, I had, I counted as, what's the word? Loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things. And what does he say about his resume? Look at what he says. I count them as rubbish. Some of your translations say dung in order that I might gain Christ. What does Paul say? He says, I'd rather suffer for Christ and spend eternity with him than live the easy life and following up with a good reputation and go to hell. In comparison to Christ, Paul sees his Jewish pedigree as rubbish. He echoes something similar to what Isaiah says in, in, chapters, uh, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, when, Paul, when uh, Isaiah talks about our good works. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteousness deeds are like polluted garments. Some of your translations say filthy rags. We are all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Paul had all of, these, all of this resume that he could boast in, but he says it's rubbish. But what is the most meaningful thing to Paul? A relationship with Christ. Because in those things, in obeying all the rules, in doing all the traditional things that he's supposed to do, there's no relationship there. None whatsoever. And so he continues. Verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I might obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have had, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love this because here you see the clear distinction. He says, the law does not make me righteous. What makes me righteous is the finished work of Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ lived on this earth. The fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. The fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he's living. Paul sees his relationship with God, not as things that he does for God, but as a relationship, an intimate relationship of knowing Christ. And I love this because you think about the weight of this. If you think about when this was written, Paul did not have a personal relationship with Christ when Christ was on earth. 
When Christ was on earth, he hung out with the disciples. The disciples knew him. One of the criticisms that Paul often got was that he wasn't truly an apostle. Even the Judaizers would criticize Paul and say, you're not truly an apostle because you didn't walk with Jesus. You didn't see Jesus perform miracles. You didn't see Jesus right after his resurrection. So Paul, it would seem odd that he would communicate his relationship with Christ like a relationship. But he absolutely does. He absolutely understands the intimacy between him and God. And it's not about doing things for him. It's about a relationship. He says that I might know him. He says that I might become like him. He says I might press on to make knowing Christ my own. He says that Christ has made me his own. And this, for this reason, Paul is trading in his resume for a relationship. And even if that relationship with Christ means a life of suffering, he's willing to do it because he knows that a relationship with Christ is what will truly bring him joy. And he knows that a relationship with Christ is far surpassing than anything else. Paul understands this wonderful truth that Jesus plus nothing is everything. So friends, a believer is not someone who's just done enough to earn a relationship with Christ. A believer is someone who is captivated by the risen Christ. And when you're captivated by the risen Christ, your life is going to be different. You're going to be set free from your performance-based view of God. And you're finally going to see God as a father who adopts you into a family. This... uh, Last week, uh, a few days ago, I cried a lot because my wife and I rented this movie called Lion. Anybody seen that movie? That will mess you up, bro. I'm just telling you. We rent this movie Lion, and I'm not going to tell you anything that you won't see in the trailer of the movie. Um, But it's about a little boy that grew up in India named Saru. Saru uh, got lost from his family about a thousand miles from where he grew up, through got on a train accidentally, ended up in Calcutta, lived in Calcutta for two months, and lived on the streets, and couldn't and tried to make his way by eating garbage, stealing food. He ended up living uh, in an orphanage for some time, and his hopes was to get home, but he realized at some point that he will never see home again. He didn't know how to read or write. He was only five years old when he went missing didn't know the name of his hometown, so it would have been impossible for him to get home. So he was just hoping that a family would adopt him. And so eventually, again, you'll see this all on the trailer, and there's other things in it that I won't tell you in this, but eventually a family adopts him, a family from Australia, and they bring him into their home, and they bring him into their lifestyle. And so he goes from all of these, in extreme poverty to extreme riches. And as I thought about as I was watching that movie, I was grieved. And you, you have this emotion that shifts because you're looking at his life and you're like so grateful, but you're also burdened for all the other children that live all around the world that face the same challenge, but they're never adopted. But what is it that made him adoptable? Nothing. The only thing that made him adoptable was the fact that he was absolutely desperate. Is there anything that he could have done to earn being adopted 
by these parents in Australia? No. The only common denominator, children that, like that that are being adopted, is desperation. And friends, it's the same thing with you and I. There is nothing that we can do to earn being adopted by God the Father. It's all his amazing grace that he would seek after us and that he would call us our own. And how foolish we would be to turn to him and say, you know what, I kind of earned that. Yeah, I kind of did some things that would make myself adoptable. I kind of did some things that would keep me in right standing with God. And for this reason, friends, we must preach the gospel with clarity. Because when we begin to add to the gospel, when we begin to think that we earn something, we're preaching a different gospel. Jonathan Edwards says, you, can, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. All of us contributed something to our salvation. It's the sin that made it necessary. It's the fact that we were sinners in need of the Savior. And so my question this morning is, which Paul are you in this text? Like, are you the old Paul who's trying to boast on your resume? Says, if I do these things, then I'm in right standing with God. If I've played the church game long enough, then I'm in right standing with God. Let me tell you, and that's not the true gospel. My hope is that you would be like the new Paul who says, I am captivated by the risen Christ. And the risen Christ is one that I want to know intimately because I have a personal relationship with. The risen Christ is one who's transformed my heart and has made me new. My hope is that you're there. But if you are like the old Paul and you're trying to boast in your religious activity to save you, my plea for you is that you would repent and believe in the true gospel. For that is where true joy is found. There's no true joy found in the law and trying to obey him based on what you do. Integrity Church, my hope is that as we as a church move forward, as we keep the gospel in the forefront of our minds and our hearts, that this would cause us not to boast in ourselves, not to boast in our efforts, not even to boast in the success of Integrity Church and the growth that we see. We would never boast on that. It would just be boasting in Christ and Christ alone. Galatians 6, Paul says, but as far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be us, Integrity Church. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are...